0: Cheverly Baptist Church in Chevrolet, Maryland, wrote a somewhat humorous parable of the church. I'm going to read it to you this morning. Nose and Hand were sitting in the church talking. The morning service, led by ear and mouth, had just ended. And Hand was telling Nose that he and his family had decided to look for a different church. Really? Nose responded to Hand's news. Why? Oh, I don't know, Hans said, looking down. He was usually slower to speak than other members of the church body. I guess because the church doesn't have what Miss Hand and I are looking for. Well, what are you looking for in a church? Nose asked. The tone in which he spoke the words was sympathetic, but even as he was speaking them, he knew that he would dismiss Hand's answer. If the hands couldn't see that that nose and the rest of the leadership were pointing in the right direction, then he could do without them. Hand had to think before answering. He and Miss Hand liked Pastor Mouth and his family. And Minister of Music Ear meant well. Well, I guess we're looking for a place where people are more like us. We tried spending time with the legs, but we didn't connect with them. Next, we joined the small group for toes, but that didn't interest us. Then, we attended the Sunday school class for all the the facial features. You remember, we came for several Sundays a couple months ago. It was great to have you. Thank you. But everybody just wanted to talk and listen and smell and taste. It felt like, well, it felt like we've never wanted to, to get to work to get your hands dirty. Anyways, Miss Han and I were thinking about going to the new church over on the east side. We hear that they do a lot of clapping and hand raising, which is closer to what we need right now. Hmm, Nose replied. I see what you mean. We'd hate to see you go, but I guess you have to do what's good for you. At that moment, Miss Hand, who had been caught up in another conversation, came to join her husband and Nose. Hand briefly explained that he and Nose had been talking about, after which Nose replied his sadness at the prospect of losing the hands. Miss Hand nodded in agreement. She wanted to be polite, but truth be told, she wasn't sad to be leaving. Her husband had made just enough critical remarks over the years that her heart had begun to reflect this. No, he had never burst in an open triad against the body. In fact, he usually apologized for being so negative, as he called it. But the little complaints that he let out here and there had had their effect. The small groups were little clique the music was a little out of date. The teaching wasn't entirely to their liking. In the end, it was hard for them to put their fingers on it. But they finally decided that the church wasn't for them. In addition to all that, Miss Hand knew that their daughter Pinky was not comfortable with the youth group. Everyone was so different from her, she felt out of joint. Miss Han then said something about how much she appreciated Nose and the leadership. But the conversation had already run too long for Nose. He thanked Miss Hand for her encouragement, repeated that he was sorry to see them go, then turned and walked away. Who needed the hands anyways? Apparently, they didn't need him. So we think about a humorous uh, allegory as that is. Sadly, for so many of us, this is the experience we have had. This is our experience in the local church. If you've been around Christians long, you know that is how Christians act. They gather and everybody seems to be focused on one thing and it isn't Jesus. It's themselves. Our church and other churches like them have become disjointed, disconnected, fueled by our own culture. Consumeristic and materialistic. A culture that has taught us that life and relationships are about us. That we are the center of our own lives. And by connection, we are the center of our own universe. And the local church, then, is just a place where we play out our own felt needs rather than meeting the needs of others. We come to have our own personal times with Jesus Rather than seeing the horizontal relationships that Christ has has graciously given us. With all the emphasis in the last number of decades on the personal relationship with Jesus, the local church has suffered. Genuine community has waned. But thankfully, God has a blueprint for the church. Thankfully, God didn't leave the church to, to kind of contextualize everything, to be just like the culture. No, rather, God has designed the church in a particular way. And as we've seen in our study of Ephesians, the local church is not something to be relegated to some small and unimportant part of, the, of your life. If you are a Christian, the Bible says the local church should be center and central rather. And how you live out your faith. And so many Christians will say, I, I can't grow. I don't, I don't know why I'm not growing in Christ. Why I can't grow spiritually. Why it is that I can't overcome this sin. And, and, and it's so interesting, so often in those conversations. Their involvement in the local church is so minimal. So minimal, even to the point maybe they show up once a month. Maybe they have a conversation. You see, God has designed the church to be the place where Christians flourish. The local gathering of God's people is God's design for your life as a Christian. It is important. It is essential to following Jesus. Jesus. And I've said it often, because the Bible says it often. Is Jesus was so clear with his disciples that they were unable to follow him alone, that they needed one another. Jesus regularly put his disciples in positions where, when they were alone, when they were thinking alone and in isolation from others, they said dumb things. Like Peter saying, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Jesus says, Peter, you need to stop thinking on your own and start thinking together. And as you think this morning about the local church in connection with your own Christian life, as you think about what relationship does the church have to me following Jesus, thankfully, Paul has the answer to that question. And as we've studied this letter, there's a purpose in it. And the purpose was chapter 4. You see, by God's grace, He's blessed us with so many new people. He's blessed us with so many new faces that, as a congregation, many, I feel, can feel like they're unwanted or not connected. We all come from different backgrounds, we all come from different church cultures. We all get kind of put together in this little little group and we don't know, like, what do we do? What is church? And, and what I've wanted to do from day one has been to say, hey, I don't want to share with you my vision for the church because my vision for the church stinks. It's terrible. But from day one, what I've hoped to do over the last four years has been to say to you, no, we don't need to go to a a new book. Uh, We don't need to look for the purpose-driven church or the missional church book or, or whatever's at the bookstore. What we need to do is just go to the Bible, open it up, and find that the church is important. And find our instructions here. We know the stories like... Nadab and Abihu. We know stories from the Old Testament that teach us that God will not be worshipped in any old way that we desire to worship Him. And if the church is to be so important, I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't going to leave it to our own ingenuity and our own creativity. He's going to be very clear and specific with how a church should function and believe and work together. And he has done that in this letter. And so as we transition to chapter 4, Paul is shifting from theology to application. Paul is moving in the letter uh, from the theological foundation of salvation in Christ alone by faith alone to what it looks like for you and I to live as Christians That we've been called out of darkness into light. That we've been invited into a new life with Christ. And we have been brought into a family. And what does that look like? Very important. Chapter 4 comes after chapter 3. 2 and 1. Right living flows out of this right theology about God. We're going to see it in our text this morning uh, that when we obey, it's, it, it, it comes out of, it flows out of our understanding and knowledge of who God is and who we are. And so we see this morning that, that Christians grow in the local church, not apart from it. That the church is the place where God has united us to grow together. The church is the fertile soil for the seeds of our faith to flourish. And so over the next few weeks and months, we're going to consider some really heavy application for our lives together as God's people, individually and corporately together. That our lives might reflect God's glory among the nation as this is his purpose for the church. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter four, if you've not already. Ephesians chapter four. Uh, this morning we're going to consider verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 4. So in page 977 in the Pew Bibles, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, In the bond of peace. Paul's point can be summarized in this way. Christians live according to their calling. By striving together for the unity of the local church. The unity of the local body. So so we're not talking about universal church here. Uh, Paul is specifically talking to a congregation. A a general letter written to a congregation. He, He We could talk about, you know, John 14 unity another time. What we're talking about here is unity in this gathering. The context where this works itself out isn't among your Christian friends and neighbors outside of this body. Yes, you do have union with them. What we're thinking particularly about is a subset of that larger Catholic unity. Little C Catholic, not big C. um, (laughs) Unity. Unity. In the local Bible, in the local body. And so we as Christians live according to our calling when we strive together for the unity of the church. All of this, as I'm going to show you, is connected to your growth as a Christian. In other words, there is a correlation between spiritual maturity and unity. A disunified church, is a spiritually immature church. A mature, growing church is a united church. At least that's the goal. So the purpose of our time this morning is really to exhort us to strive toward unity in this local gathering. Uh, this week we're going we're gonna to talk about sort of the, the exhortation of unity. Next week we're going to think a little bit more about the theology behind it. Uh, particularly thinking about the Trinity as the motivation to unity. And so how do you help our church grow in unity? So I want you to think particularly here about how you participate to further unity in our church. And I've, I've got three C's uh, to advance unity in our local church. Three C's calling, character and conduct. First in verse one. Paul says, give attention to your calling. Give attention to your calling. Notice what he writes. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, you all, the whole congregation, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you all have been called. Paul begins here with uh, theological underpinning, doesn't he? Uh, This verse is really a summary of all the rest of the letter. So verse one here could, could re- really just is the head verse for the rest of the book. "Walk worthy of your calling." Well, of course, this aspect or idea of divine call is not foreign to this letter. Of course, that's what he began with. Look here in chapter one. Just gaze your eyes over at chapter one, you'll see there. "Blessed be in verse three, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places. Verse 4, here it is. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Notice what the purpose is. That we should be holy and blameless before him. You see the correlation between our election, our divine call, and our holy lives. There is a correlation. Then you'll notice here in Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 18. He prays that they would have eyes, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he he continues to go on through that prayer as we studied weeks ago. Now I want you to notice verse verse 10 of chapter 2, how he culminates that prayer. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of this is to to really just demonstrate for you the connection between calling and holiness. This is why Paul phrases the the sentence in chapter chapter 4 and verse 1 the way he does. Walk worthy of your calling. Again, we've said many times, Paul's ethical exhortations uh, could be summarized, can be summarized, in the simple phrase, act like what you are. In other words, a right understanding of who you are in Jesus leads to a life transformed by that knowledge. Our lives are shaped by the knowledge of who we are in Christ, that we've been called out of of darkness into light to be like Christ. Now, the word Paul uses here to walk uh, really is kind of old. I know, know if you've grown up in church, you know, how's your walk? You walk in, how how you doing, right? We used to, you know, I remember uh, folks uh, say that. I think that became popular from this phrase uh, in the new English version. The NIV uh, made that phrase popular and why you probably, if you've grown up in church, heard that a lot. How's your walk? Literally what it means is, um, is your life characterized by Christ likeness? Uh, Your walk, the verb there means the character, your character. How how is your character? And so Paul here is saying, listen, is your life characterized by your calling? Does your life match this high status that you've received? Now think about it this way. If you were invited to a wedding or invited to a banquet, for example, and you show up to this wedding or this banquet and your behavior is completely erratic. You're just a fool. You act like a complete fool. Now, th- how does that reflect? Does that reflect on you? Yes. But but who does it ultimately reflect on? Well, of course, the person who invited you. Who let this weirdo in here? Oh, I did. Well, well, this is what Paul is arguing. He's saying God has invited you into a relationship with him. God has invited you and set you before his table. Act like what you are. You are a child of God. Again, Paul does this in chapter 5. In chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Act like children. We joke often that our kids act just like their parents, right? I remember when, when I was working with students all the time and parents would come and complain to me about their teenagers. I would look them in the face and say, They're acting like you. <laughs> it's true. So when we complain about our kids acting like, you know, we're, we we got to begin at home, right? And so, so it is in the Christian life. We should act. Our, our behavior should match our calling. Well, Paul himself offers us, I think, an illustration of that in verse 1. Look again at verse 1. Look what Paul says. Not by accident. He begins this way. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is not setting up in some ivory tower, exhorting these lowly Christians to be better. Paul is chained to a Roman soldier in a pit. And he's only there because he's following Jesus. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Jesus put me down here in this pit and I'm here because of him. Paul himself, his own life modeled what he's exhorting here. A willingness to go and follow Christ, whatever the cost. And so you and I, if we are to live godly lives, it has to begin with this question. Does my manner of living match this high calling that I've received? Meditate on that today. Do my words and my actions honor Christ? Are they worthy of Christ? It's a question we must wrestle with and, and think through. Unity in the local church advances as you and I give attention to our calling, as we think about this divine election that we have thankfully received, that we that our lives be affected by it and changed by it, and understanding then that theology fuels obedience. So we want to think hard and, and about difficult passages and, and think together theologically. We want to use the Bible. And use Bible words and having that conversation. Well, thankfully, Paul goes on, I think, to give a fuller expression, a fuller of understanding of how we are to walk. He doesn't leave it to chance. You know, sometimes we could we use generic, uh, very abstract. Uh, be holy. Walk worthily. Be good, right? And uh, and again, just use illustration of children. If you give a child a command. Uh, they have this very unique ability, don't they, uh, to interpret your instructions in many, many different ways, right? You know, they just have this unique ability. And, and I think we do as well as sinful creatures, right? Uh, we, we, we always are looking for the loophole. Uh, but thankfully, Paul here doesn't just leave us to chance. Hmm, how am I going to walk worthily? He gets to specifics in verses 2 and 3. And so Paul here says, listen, how you live worthily is by giving attention to your character, Paul begins with character before he goes into conduct. You see, you know, a lot of times we focus on, okay, what do I need to do? You see, Jesus taught us that out of the heart flows our actions. And so if we just focus on conduct, as so many Christians tend to do, then all we are doing is behavioral modification. We're not actually changing our hearts. We just get, like Jesus said, a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Everything looks good, you know. They they behave, you know. They they're good citizens. They give money to the church. Their butts in the pew every week. They look good, but you don't have to be in the church long to know that some of those really good-looking folks inside not so good. And so we give attention to our character first, as Paul does here. Look at verse two. and he says, "Give attention to your character." That we are to live a life worthy of our calling. With all humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul outlines three ways, three manners in which we are to live. We are to first live humbly. Humility is a mark of a maturing Christian. Humility, modesty, thinking of others more than ourselves. Brothers and sisters, one of the things we must understand is that pride is the poison in the the poisons rather the unity in the local church. It's that cancer Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. Pride. The yeast that leavens the whole lump. Our pride fractures the church. And the context here is of our character in the context of the local church. Humility is a virtue that we should strive for. We shouldn't just say, oh, you know, that's an extraordinary person. He's a humble guy. No, we should strive for humility in our lives. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what it is. And brother and sister, I wonder when you gather on the Lord's Day, when you gather with other believers in your home, is the conversation all about you? Or about them? Do you gather to see your needs met or to meet others' needs? Is the church really just here to serve your spiritual benefit? Or rather, for you to serve others. Of course, Jesus is the pinnacle example of this, of humility. Paul articulates this well, of course, in a a familiar hymn in in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I just want to pause. We we jump over verse 5 often. It's yours. Don't make excuses for being prideful if you're a Christian, because through your union with Christ, it's yours. That's the point he's making. When he's saying Jesus is humble, follow the logic. Jesus is humble. You're united to Jesus, therefore you're humble. You'll be humble. He'll humble you. Who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The eternal God clothing himself in human flesh and just hanging around sinners. Like we need to see our minds blown by that fact. That's the kind of humility we want to see in the local church. That there's not positions of privilege. Rod and I went to the SBC last week. One of the things that annoys me the most in the parliamentary uh, function of the SBC is they have uh, positions of privilege. In other words, if you have served in some office in leadership, uh, you get privileged. Position. You, you can speak when maybe others can't speak. It annoys me to death. Um, it just frustrates me to death. But in the local church, we don't have position of privilege. Pastors are not more privileged than, than members. Deacons are not more important or more privileged. The people up front aren't more important. We want to elevate those who are of lowly status, right? That's what Jesus says, in, or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We need everyone, hands, toes, and noses. We need them all. In fact, in the context of 1 Corinthians, he says that we're to elevate those of more hidden places. And we do that by verbally saying thank you. Thank you for mowing the grass. Thank you for taking out the trash. Thank you for sweeping the floor. Thank you for taking that senior adult to the doctor and not coming in here and telling us about it. Thank you. But not only are we to be humble, notice what he says in verse 2, we're to be gentle. Christians are to be marked with a a gentleness about us. Again, the word means here, it is a quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's very closely connected to the word humility, but it's fleshed out quietly different. Uh, Maybe meekness is in your Bible, a word very familiar to our King James readers, meekness. Gentleness, not not being overly impressed with your own self-importance. And frankly, the sin of entitlement leads us to not be very gentle. Our culture prizes entitlement. We feel that we are entitled to so many things. And, And thankfully, if you just read your Bible enough, you'll realize you're not even entitled to life. That it's a gift of God's grace. And one of the things as Christians we must fight a bit against and work towards is entitlement. When we gather together, we must not think that one is entitled to something more than another. But rather be gentle with one another. Now to be clear, meekness doesn't mean that we're weak. It doesn't mean that we're weaklings. Humility also doesn't mean that we just kind of, you know, quietly and are shy. That's not humility at all. Some of the most humble people I know are, are one of the most, you know, very extrovert, loud, you know, smart, you know, but they're humble. And they're meek. Remember Jesus teaching his disciples that blessed are the meek. Jesus had a ministry of meekness. He cared for others even at his own expense, even often at his own spiritual expense. When he was off praying, the disciples would come and the people need you, Jesus. And Jesus would leave his time with his father to go meet others' needs. Brother, sister, how are you gentle with others? How do you see that others are more important than yourself, that your time, your health, Not only to be gentle, you see also here that we are to, that we are to live in a manner of, of patience. Uh, patience simply means uh, an ability to bear up under pressure, right? Forbearance. Frankly, I'm thankful that word is in the Bible. Because if you hang out with Christians long, you need a lot of patience. Well, we know what the word means. We have a sense of the idea to be patient with one another. Means that our expectations are are reachable to be patient with others means that we understand that we have a good, healthy doctrine of the depravity of man. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And that we're all working to grow. Some of us are further along than others. And we're patient with those who are slow. When I'm out with my family, I like to walk. Like, I just I can't, I can't linger around. We're at the mall. And I'm going. Wherever we're going, I'm going to walk there as fast as I could get there. Because I want to get out of there. <laughs> Not my family. They're very slow. They kind of meander along. I'm like, come oh on, let's go. That's, you know. And I think they just have to be patient and I'm being patient right? Sometimes in our life there are Christians in the body who are just maybe not maturing very quickly and we've got to be patient with them. You know, it's so funny how often we forget that we were in their same position. That we didn't know everything. That, that we were fumbling around and, and 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 kind of immature in our thinking. But we must be patient. Proverbs 25 reminds us, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Patience. Patience. Paul, of course, lists patience in the fruit of the Spirit. And the point I want to make really quickly before we move on is this. Look at verse 2 here and and I want to convince you from verse 2 why you as a Christian must have other Christians in your life in the context of a local church. Because you can't, you can't obey verse 2 without other Christians. You see the point? You can't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit without other people. All of them imply the presence of people. Humble, Humility, gentleness, and patience works itself out in the context of people. And so if you want to do the lone Christian thing... Just understand, it won't work. It's why we need the local church. Why we need to gather every Lord's Day. Because every Lord's Day, we need to work on humility, gentleness, and patience. Every Lord's Day, we need to practice the fruit of the Spirit in the context of the gathered church. And often what we do in our personal lives when we are facing immense provocation and difficulty, is we flee. I'm just not going to deal with it. It's just going to ignore it. Do you understand how that leads to a cancerous disunity in the local church when you do that? You, do you understand how devastating that is to your own soul when all you do is ignore the problem rather than dealing with it? You will never grow to be patient if you run from all your problems. And you will never learn to be patient with other Christians unless you just get over it and grow in patience. Well, as our character is transformed, of course, it's going to show up in our conduct. As our hearts are transformed, as we pray, God, let these things show up in my life. Let Let me be characterized by humility, gentleness, and patience. Let me be known for these traits, not not for pride and rudeness and impatience. Then we see that Paul continues in verse the half, second half of verse two and then verse three, that we are to give attention to our conduct. Character shows itself in our conduct. And here we see two specific ways that Paul just sort of nails us down and very, you know, very, very specific here. Let me just work down this ladder of abstraction. Let me get really specific. How, How does humility, gentleness and patience show up? We'll look at verse two by bearing with one another in love and by being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, bearing with one another and eager to maintain unity. These are the two actions that we are to take in the local church to help further unity. Uh, To bear with one another means to tolerate, to endure, to put up with. I know it's surprising to be in a church of sinners. And sometimes we just have to put up with people. We just have to bear with one another. And frankly, you've got to bear with me and it's okay, you know. I'm not perfect. And neither are you. But we're called to bear with one another. to, to, To love one another in such a particular way. As to understand and see that we are all sinners in need of a savior. To bear with one another implies that we are going to disagree. It implies that there is going to be a level of disunity in the church. There always will be. You will never find a perfectly unified church on earth. But we should be striving towards it. Brothers and sisters, we must see that that there are going to be times when you and I are going to get on each other's nerves. That we're going to get annoyed. We're going to grow frustrated that, that, you know, Sister Susie hasn't matured as much as she should have. That doesn't give us an excuse to give up, but to bear. Also, this implies that we are to care for one another in a particular way, bearing one another's burdens. This morning, I as I was praying, just overwhelmed with a sense of burden, knowing so many of our members are struggling. Whether it be struggling with physical health or spiritual temptations, it just is a burden. Well, this thankfully is why we'll see in verse 12 why God has called a plurality of elders to shepherd the church so that one shepherd isn't being crushed by the spiritual burdens of others. But that we are to bear with one another in love. Finally, here we see that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's fascinating that Paul uses the word eager here. Eager, he says. There's a sense of urgency, a desire, a zealousness, a, a, a pain-drivenness that, in other words, we're not passive. Unity doesn't just happen. Unity is hard work. It is arduous. It is painful. But it is gloriously good. It requires our regular and intentional focus you know so often we we do things we, we have possessions like cars and, and houses and one of the things that o- often happens in those contexts is we have uh, something called deferred maintenance congress has a similar syndrome it's called kicking the can right but it'll be someone else's problem i'm going to trade it in it'll be their problem I'm going to sell my house. It'll be their problem, right? We, we tend to just put things and maintenance off. We, we do it another day. Notice the word he uses here in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is a maintenance that has to be done in the local church. And it's a regular thing. It's, it's not like we, okay, we're unified. It's over. No, 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 no. We want to see it's an ongoing process, a continual thing of maintaining unity. Maintaining it. We notice here in verse 3 that it's the unity brought by the Spirit, and it brings about a bond of peace. In other words, we lay down our swords, and we're bonded together through our union with Jesus Christ. We're going to think more about that next week, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. But one of the things I want to just kind of hone in here is the sort of bond Peace. We've been glued together as Christians in this local body. Uh, We have covenanted together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and through our profession of faith. We've come together and says, we're going to do life together. And we've been bonded together. And one of the things that happens when you bond things together is if you fiddle around with the bond, sometimes it can break. You glue something together you go around messing with that before it dries what happens it breaks and oftentimes what we do is we fiddle around with the bond and we get bonded over things that are not gospel centered you see it's really easy to create unity in this world we could point to numerous types of ways you're unified you you, know, you might hang out with all your you know Redskins, or uh, you might hang out with all your uh, Baltimore Orioles fans, or you know, I mean, you get this sort of all the rock concerts and country music followers, and all the people that are Republicans and Democrats. Like this world can create unity, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a bond that is deep, a bond that is lasting, a bond that that brings about unity. And I want to make a very important distinction as we conclude. That we strive for unity, not uniformity. Unity in the local church doesn't mean that we all agree on the same matters. Now, we all agree on certain matters. We all agree on the gospel. Uh, We all agree on the ordinances, right? So if you're a Presbyterian, we love you. It's a good Presbyterian church down the street. Um, And we commend you to go there. Uh, Right, because we don't love you, we'll see you in heaven. We affirm you are a believer in Christ. Right, but in order to do church, we kind of have to be unified on what the ordinances are, what baptism is, and what the Lord's Supper is. Right, if we're confused about those things, uh, we're not going to have a lot of unity. But we're not uniform. Uh, We don't. We're not all trying to say you have to like the same kind of music. Or you have to dress the same way. Or you have to think the same way about global warming. Or you have to think the same way about, you know, what we should do in the next election. No, there's a midst of diversity, even in the midst of our unity. and So we must not confuse the two. And so as we patiently bear with one another in love, and as we eagerly maintain the unity of the body of Christ, we grow together. we want to see that's the purpose here. That, brothers and sisters, that we grow in Christian maturity in correlation to our unity in the local church. The point remains, and and I hope you see it, that unity in this body is essential to your growth spiritually. And so you should see it as important. You should work towards it because if you don't, you will suffer just as much as everyone else. We grow spiritually in the local church and not apart from her. We must strive together, fight hard for the unity that the gospel has brought in our lives. One of the things that we must be ready to fight for every day of the week is unity in this local body. Because as this body is divided, so it casts shame on the glory and wonder of Christ. And so let us give attention to our calling. Let's give attention to our character and our conduct. Let us pursue these things, fighting side by side for the unity of the local church. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the grace that you have given us in Christ. For uniting us in this family. We know that we are unwelcomed apart from Christ and his finished work. We glory in the cross today. And thank you for uniting us together in Christ. Help us, we pray, to strive together. To be eager together. To maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Help us, we pray, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, not by chance, we have the opportunity to demonstrate unity. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper... It was in the context of a small gathering of his disciples. And at that meal, there would have been a loaf, one loaf, and one cup was passed. Now, as Christians have carried that tradition on through history, as Baptists, we have lost it. But historically, Christians would take one loaf and one bread eat from the common loaf, and drink from a common cup. Now we're not going to do that this morning, so all the germaphobes don't worry. It's okay. (laughs) But what we hope to do is demonstrate through the supper that we have one confession, one Lord, one baptism, one supper. And that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a demonstration of our unity together in Christ as we feast from the body and blood of Christ. And so one of the purposes you want to, I hope, see from communion is this aspect of unity. That's why we do it in the context of the gathered church, not in small groups or in hospital rooms or elsewhere, in a privacy of our own home. It's an ordinance of the church to unite us together to demonstrate the glory and beauty of Christ. So as our ushers come forward, I want to remind you of those things. And ushers, make sure you grab your bulletin. Another way that demonstrates our unity is our church covenant. Of course, our church covenant is not made up of, or is is not inspired, rather. It's not infallible. It was written by men, broken as we are. But it is taking its inspiration from the scriptures. So if you're a member of our church, I invite you to make your way in your bulletin to page 10. And there you'll find our church covenant. Again, this articulates for us well how we hope to live together as Christians. Just as a married couple takes a covenant vow in their marriage ceremony to declare to the world how they will love one another, how they will care for one another, how they will do marriage. Brothers, sisters, the church covenant merely articulates how we hope to do life together. So we're going to read it. And so that's why I invite you to turn to page 10. And we're going to read together our church covenant. Ready? Having been led by the spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal savior. And on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. We do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ. And by the aid of the Holy Spirit, commit to the following. We will walk together in Christian love with truth, to strive for the advancement of our church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its spirituality and prosperity, to sustain scriptural worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, to demonstrate our church's sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, By being faithful in our attendance on the Lord's Day. Contributing cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We commit to maintain family and personal devotions, raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and seek the salvation of our family and friends. We also commit to be a careful witness in the world, being just in our dealings, avoiding all gossip, backbiting, and unrighteous anger, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, to abstain from anything that would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit, and be zealous in our efforts to maintain a testimony for the cause and name of Christ. We further commit to watch over one another in brotherly love and spiritual concern, calling each other to follow Jesus, remembering each other in prayer, Aid each other in sickness and distress, cultivating Christian sympathy in feeling and speech, being slow to take offense and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure reconciliation without delay. Moreover, we commit that when we move from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can live out the spirit of this covenant and the principles and practices of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Well, who is welcome to the table? The Bible makes clear it is only to be feasted by those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. If you understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, having repented and trusted in Christ, and having been baptized as a believer... Friend, brother, sister, you are welcome to feast with us. Even though you're not a member of our congregation, we still welcome you. If you, this morning, are living in unrepentant sin, though you understand yourself to be a Christian, you still are in unrepentant sin. The Bible warns against eating and drinking judgment upon yourself by feasting on this table. And so, uh, we'd ask that you abstain. Also, if you do not self-consciously understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ well, then we would ask that you just allow the the, uh, plate to pass that it comes by. Uh, We won't look down upon you, uh, but rather we want to come in to have a conversation with you about how to follow Jesus in your own life together. Well, let's pray now. Father, we gather as your church to obey you. Father, it is lost on us so often that that this has been carried on generation after generation for 2,000 years because of a simple command that you gave eat and drink. Uh, Father, may we demonstrate the unity in the bond of peace as we feast together, brothers and sisters in Christ, at your table, a reflection of the table to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen.